Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Take your Bible tonight and let's go uh, to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke and chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke and chapter 2. We're going to look at a few verses here, starting in verse 25, verses that sometimes we associate with the Christmas story or the story of Christ's birth sometime after uh, the uh, birth in Bethlehem. And we're not preaching a Christmas message tonight, but we're using this as a launching uh, pad to a truth that I believe can help us tonight. Luke chapter 2, and uh, let's read starting in verse 25. The Bible says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, Then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. I want you to think about verse 33 again. Bible says there, and Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. This is the first time in the scriptures that people marveled at the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's just a baby, he's just a small boy, yet he's the promised Messiah, but even in this early part of his life, as people began to speak about him, The Bible says that Mary and Joseph marveled. And over and over again, as you read through the Gospels and the life of Jesus Christ, time after time, people marveled at what they saw and what they heard from the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, in John chapter 7 and verse 15, the Bible says the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Now, at that point, he's 12 years old, he's in the temple, you remember as a boy, and he's answering all the questions of the, of the theologians of that day. He's, he's answering their questions from the scriptures, and they marveled. They thought, how does this boy, how does this 12-year-old understand the scriptures? How does he understand the prophecies? And they marveled. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 33, the Bible says, and when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake and the multitudes marveled saying it was never so seen in Israel as Jesus cast out this evil spirit and they saw the result they marveled at the miracle that Jesus had done in Mark chapter 12 and verse 17 Jesus answering said unto them render unto Caesar that which is Caesar and to God the things that are God's and they marveled at him Jesus said, pay your taxes. (laughs) And they marveled that he was telling them to submit to a human government when he himself was God. They marveled. In in, in John chapter 4, you remember the story of the woman at the well. 
And the Bible says when the disciples returned from getting something to eat, they marveled that he talked with the woman. Remember, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, and all of a sudden Jesus is, is speaking with this woman that the disciples were kind of taken back. They, they marveled that he would take an interest in someone like that. You remember when Jesus stood before Pilate, and Pilate began to question the Lord Jesus about who he was, and the Bible says in Mark chapter 15, Jesus answered nothing, and Pilate marveled at him. Here was this potentate, here was this person in charge asking him questions, and Jesus chose to remain silent, and Pilate marveled. In Mark chapter 15, Pilate marveled if he were already dead. You remember they came, they said, break the legs of these on the crosses so we can enjoy our feast day tomorrow. And, and Pilate, he, he, he inquired about whether they were still alive, and they came back and they said, Jesus is already dead, and Pilate marveled. Over and over again, we see people looking at the Lord Jesus Christ and marveling. I hope you take some time in your daily life to marvel at what God has done for you. I hope there's some time in your schedule that allows you just to think about the fact that by the grace of God, we are what we are. I know we can kind of think, well, you know, I work hard and, and I've got some abilities and, and I've accomplished this and, and here's my bank account and here's my job and, and, and here's my family and look what I've done. But you know what? All of us are what we are by the grace of God. Amen. And that ought to cause us to marvel. Now in Christ Jesus, you who are sometime afar off are made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. Where would we be? without Jesus shed blood on that cross? Where would we be without the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ tonight? The word marvel is defined this way in the dictionary, to be awed, to be overwhelmed, to uh, be struck with wonder, to be amazed, staggered, astonished, now, it's understandable that we as finite creatures would be awestruck, astonished, staggered at the goodness of God in our life. To save us from hell, to save us from our sin, to give us abundant life, that ought to astonish us. We ought to marvel at that. But does our infinite God ever marvel at us? Does God ever look at your life or mine and be awestruck, astonished, staggered, amazed? Does God ever marvel at us? Well, there are two times in the New Testament when Jesus marveled at a person. And I want to look at those tonight. Turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And in this passage of Scripture, Jesus marveled at their skeptical fear. 
Look at verse 1 of Mark chapter 6. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, the Joseph, and Judah, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could do there no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus here is staggered. He's, he's awestruck. He's astonished at their skeptical fear. They were skeptical of his words. In verse number two, he begins to speak, and they, they said, from whence does this man have this wisdom? How can this man know these things? And then they were, they were skeptical of his works in the latter part of verse two. They said uh, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. They were astonished. They're, they're, they, they were hesitant toward God's promises. His works, his words had all been prophesied in the Old Testament. Everything that Jesus said was a fulfillment of what had already been prophesied of the Messiah. All of these miracles, all of these things that Jesus did, they were all prophesied in the Old Testament, and yet they were skeptical. They said, how, did, how can he say these things? How can he do these things? They were hesitant toward God's promises, skeptical fear. I wonder, what promises tonight are we doubting? It's all right here. God promises us salvation. And yet I meet so many people who say, can you really know that you're saved? I mean, can you really know you're on your heaven? Isn't that a little presumptuous to think that when we die, we go to heaven? I mean, how can you really know that? But God promised it. And, and God would marvel tonight that we would not believe that we could be saved when God said, these things are written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life. Now God said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's not something to be skeptical about. That's not something to doubt when God himself gives that promise of eternal life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth in me shall never thirst. All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So if you have trusted Jesus Christ by faith, why do you doubt that you're going to heaven? Why, why do you let Satan tempt you to doubt about your salvation? Sometimes we doubt his security. We live in a world that's dangerous. We live in a world that is oftentimes afraid to even come out at night, aren't we? I was in a revival meeting up in Minneapolis uh, this past year, and it happened to be during the, during the trial of the George Floyd case. And I was preaching in an area there right by the police station in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. And there was a, a lady who lived 
right across the street from the Brooklyn City, uh, Brooklyn City, uh, Brooklyn Center Police Station. And uh, this is where some of the riots were taking place and they were burning down buildings and riding in the streets. This lady was a widow lady of about 70 years old. She came every night to the revival. And her neighbor said, you're crazy. Why are you going out there at night? You're taking your life in your own risk. I mean, you're, you're, you're risking your life to, to pull out of your garage, to, to go down the street. What are you thinking? She said, I need to go to church. That's where my security is. It's in God. It's in the Lord. And I need to worship him. You know, we can get frightened by all these things around us, but what did God promise us? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Amen. We don't need God's protection when we don't, when we don't have any threats. We, we don't need God's protection if everything's peaceful. It's in these moments of, of difficulty. It's in these moments when, when we might be fearful humanly that we can rest in the promise of God's security. Do we doubt the promise of his strength? We say, boy, Lord, I just don't know, Lord, if I could keep doing this. I don't, I, I just, I'm so overwhelmed. My family, my work, my ministry, my church, all these things just seem to be piling on and in the midst of, of sickness, in the midst of uncertainty and chaos and all these things politically and socially and, politic and economically and, and we get overwhelmed and we think, Lord, I can't do this. You're right. But he said, my grace is sufficient for thee. Amen. My strength is made perfect in weakness. I can do all things, Paul said, through Christ, which strengtheneth me. The prophet said, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Why do we doubt that God will give us strength? We begin to wonder, can God supply my needs? I was uh, listening the other day and someone said, now if you live in California, you're paying 40% income taxes to the federal government. Our wonderful governor, Mr. Newsom, now wants to raise our state income tax to 30%. So 40 and 30, that's 70% of your income. Your sales tax is at 10% or more, so now we're at 80%. The pastor says we're supposed to tithe 10%, so we're at 90%. And then he tells us we're supposed to give to missions, right? And the building program. And You know, after a while, you're like, Lord, I'm in the hole before I buy groceries, Right? And we wonder, how is this possible? But God's not up in heaven saying, hey, Gabriel, uh, check the storehouses. There seems to be a supply chain problem down there. Uh, uh, what's going on? Are the storehouses empty? And Gabriel says, no, Lord, I was there this morning. We got more than we know what to do with. You see, the problem is us, isn't it? We're not walking by faith. We're walking by sight because God said, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I'm so glad that verse doesn't say he'll supply all, all of our need out of his abundant mercies. Because if he said out of, it could run out. In other words, if we're depleted the resources of God, every time he gives to us, eventually it's got to run out. But he says, I'm not supplying your resources out of my abundance. I'm supplying it according to my abundance. God's not going to run out of resources. 
He's going to supply our needs. We can trust him. David said, I've been young, now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor seed begging bread. Sometimes we, we're skeptical about God's schedule. You know, we think, okay, God, I, I know you promised all this, but um, when? <laughs> you know, come on, Lord, uh, my checkbook's getting low. Come on, Lord, my strength's about to run out. Where are you? And we, 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 we begin to doubt that God's going to forget or God's not going to be on time with the things that we need. But God says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. You know, you think of that word ordered. If, if you go to a restaurant and you sit down, a, a waiter or a waitress is going to come by your table eventually and hand you a menu... And maybe say, would you like something to drink while you look at the menu? I'd be glad to get that for you. And you say, yeah, I'll have a Coke or I'll have some water or I'll have some iced tea. And she goes and gets that, comes back and she says, are you ready to order? Right? Are you ready to order? Well, by that time you've looked at the menu and you say, yeah, I believe I am. And so you place an order. Well, God, in that sense, has an order for our life. He's already ordered our life. He already has predetermined what he wants our life to be. And so the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. He has a specific will of God for every person in this room. Now, it's different for all of us. Not all of us are the pastor of this church. There's only one pastor of the church, right? That's God's will for Pastor Choi. That's not God's will for me. But God, at the same time, has a plan for my life and a plan for your life. So he's already ordered that. But the word order also indicates sequence. If I said to my, my secretary, if I, if I gave her a bunch of tests, if I gave a test in my class and I, I said to my secretary, could you, could you put these tests in alphabetical order by last name? Well, she would know exactly what to do. You would too. You would know that I want them alphabetized from A to Z uh, uh, by the last name so that it would be easier for me to maybe record the grade or whatever. You would understand, I want these in alphabetical order. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Job said, thou numberest all my steps. I remember when I was in elementary school, every once in a while the teacher would come in and she'd put a piece of paper face down on the desks. She said, don't turn it over until I tell you. And we'd be sitting there going, is this a test? Oh, I didn't study, I didn't, re I didn't remember she'd say anything about this, we'd get nervous. And then she'd say, okay, turn them over. And we'd turn it over and it was one of those dot to dots. Remember that? All those little dots on the page, little numbers next to the dots. I love those. I really did. I, I think it was to teach us how to count, right? And so she would say, go, and, and, and you'd, have to, you'd have to take your pencil, and you'd have to find the, num the dot with the number one. And when you found the number one, you, then you had to look for number two, you know? And when you found it, you had to draw a line from number one to number two. And then you found number three, and you drew a line to number three, and then to four, and then to five. And if you knew your numbers in order... By the time you got done, it was a picture of something that you didn't realize before, you know. And if you were like me, I always wanted to be the first one done. I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to know what it was first. So I could say, it's a rooster, it's a rooster, you know. 
And so I was very competitive, and I, boy, she'd say go, and I would start looking, you know, and I'd be drawing my lines, and I'm doing pretty good. And then I'd look over at that smart girl next to me. And I'm on number four, and she's on like number nine. And I would panic. I'd think, no, she's going to know before I do. And so I'd think, well, I'm going to skip some numbers. You know, I'm going to catch up. So I'd go from number four to number 11, and then 14, and then maybe 22. But you know, if you do that, when you get done, it's not a rooster. It's a mess. But aren't we like that? God's got us on number six. We say, Lord, I don't like number six. I want to move to number seven. God says, no, I've got you here on number six first. You need to learn on number six. You ever notice when you ask children, how old are you? And kids will say, like, like if they're six, they'll say, I'm almost seven. Right? I'm almost seven. You say, really? When's your birthday? October. It's January. <laughs> you know, I'm almost seven. Now, when you get older, somebody asks you how old you are, you say, oh, I'm in my 40s. <laughs> you know, you're actually 49, but you're in your 40s. In other words, we kind of want to go back, but a child is always looking ahead. They're always looking at that next thing, and they can't wait to be 10, you know, double digits. They can't wait to turn 13. I'm a teenager now. Yes. And then they can't wait to be 16 and drive a car. And then they can't wait to be 18. Oh, that's a good one. Now you can go fight a war. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you can go vote, you know. Uh, then you turn 21. Oh, boy, that's kind of adulthood for sure. After that, it really doesn't matter. But, you know, you look forward to that next thing. You can't wait to get out of high school. And then you can't wait to go to college. And then you can't wait to get married. And then you can't wait to have kids. And then you can't wait till the kids leave, <laughs> you know. And, and, and we're always looking ahead. And we're never content. On the dot, God has us. God has you on a dot right now. You may not like it. You may think, God, I, I, I want to move on. I want to get to the next thing. I want, I, I, I want change. But we got to trust God's order, God's schedule in our life. Amen. You see, God marvels at our hesitancy toward God's promises. And those hesitancies, when it comes to God's promises, hinder God's power. Did you notice it here in verse 5? He said he could, do, he, could, he could there do no mighty work. He healed a few sick people, but other than that, there was nothing more he could do there because of their unbelief. In Matthew chapter 13, similarly, Jesus comes to a place and he says he could not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Wouldn't it be a sad thing if God tonight looked at Bible Baptist Church in Gardena, California, in the middle of Los Angeles, and he said, that's where I want to start a revival. Right there. I want to start a revival right there that will impact all of L.A., no, let, let's move on. There's no faith there. What if God looked at your life or mine and he said, boy, I'd like to use that guy. I'd like to bless that guy. I'd like to, I'd like to use that family. No, let's go on to somebody else. There's no faith there. 
he marveled at their unbelief. And that unbelief is a hindrance to what God wants to do. There's an interesting story in 2 Kings chapter 7. The Bible tells us there that there was a terrible famine. There was no food. And it didn't matter how much money you had, there was no food. You, you couldn't buy any food because there wasn't any. And they are in desperate straits. But Elisha, the prophet, shows up on the scene, and in verse number one, Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, thou shalt, a measure of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, in the gate of Samaria. Now, as the chapter opens, there is no food, there's nothing to buy, and the prophet shows up and he says, I have a message from God. Tomorrow, about this time, there in that gate, you'll be able to buy flour, you'll be able to buy barley, and, and you'll be able to buy it for practically nothing, a shekel. In verse 2, then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned. So here's this could we say government official? This lord upon whom the king leaned? In other words, here was an advisor to the, to the king. A lord said to the man of God, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? In other words, he's saying, you're crazy. This is impossible. If, if God put windows in the sky, there's no way that tomorrow at this time there'd be enough food for everybody to buy everything they needed for a shackle. You're crazy. You're, this is a false message. Don't believe this fool. And he, Elisha, said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not eat thereof. He said, you're going to see it, because he promised it. But you're not going to partake, because of your doubt. And the Bible tells us in the end of that chapter that the Syrians fled, and the Israelites spoiled the Syrians. And in, in one day, one 24-hour period, that next day, two measures of barley and, and a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. But the man, the Lord, on whom the king leaned, the Bible says in verse 17, the people trod him under until he died. He saw it, but he never got to partake in it. Wouldn't it be a tragedy for you and I to live in 2022 and God does a miracle of revival in Los Angeles. We saw it, but we didn't get to be a part of it. Because God marveled at our unbelief. Jesus marveled at their unbelief, their skeptical fear. But let's look at another passage. Go to Luke chapter 7. Because this is just the opposite. Jesus again marvels. But this time he marvels at a superlative faith. Look at chapter 7 and verse 1. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. 
And a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loves our nation, and he has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was not, now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself. For I'm not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set up under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Here's this centurion. And one of his trusted servants becomes ill. And this centurion sends a messenger to Jesus to tell him of, his, of this sickness and invites him to come that he might heal him. And so the messengers go and they tell Jesus, now, now this man is worthy of, of a word, Lord, with you. He's a good man. He, he's a trusted man. He, he's, even, he's even built us a synagogue. Uh, this man has been very kind to us and he's worthy of your attention. So Jesus comes. But what, before he got to the centurion's house, the centurion, he sends another messenger out. And he says, Lord, don't, don't, don't bother with me. Lord, I'm not worthy of you to come into my house. Lord, I'm not worthy to, to go out of my house and see you. If you, you could just speak the word, my servant will be whole. And Jesus marveled. He marveled at his superlative faith. Nothing arrests God's attention any more than faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please him. And when God sees faith in his people, when God sees faith in a believer, he's, his, his attention is on us. He tells us in the, in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, as we put on all this armor, he says, above all, take the shield of faith. Faith is that component that God is looking for in our life. Now, Jesus had certainly seen faith in people before he, he ever met this centurion. He had seen people of faith. So what caused him to marvel at this man's faith? Why is this the only, the second time that Jesus ever marveled, and in this case, in a positive way? He had seen faith before. Why did he marvel at this man's faith? I believe because it was preceded by a curious humility. This centurion had some big credentials. He was worthy of Jesus' help. The Bible says in verse 5, he loved his nation. He had built a synagogue. This man's not a Jew, but he had built the Jews a synagogue. This man was benevolent. This man was a philanthropist, if you please. He was one who was helping people. And they said, uh, Lord, his reputation is a good reputation. He's worthy of your help. He's worthy of your attention. But then in verses 6 and 7, as Jesus comes, this centurion reveals what's really in his heart. It's not, to him, it's not all about his credentials. It's not about who he is. We see a curious humility. 
as he says, Lord, stop. I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. Lord, I'm not even worthy to come out of my house and meet you in the street. I'm not worthy. A curious humility. Do we make demands on God based on who we are? Do we say, now God, I, I, I went to church Friday night and I went to church Saturday night and I'm gonna to go to church Sunday morning. Surely you'll let the Rams win, right? <laughs> you ever do that? You say, no, God, come on, I, I, I built you a synagogue, right? I, I'm a good man, I, I'm doing good things. I, I'm not messing with sin, I'm, I'm doing right. Lord, based on that, bless me. But that's not this guy. Others said some things like that about him, but that wasn't his attitude. It wasn't like, I deserve because of who I am. Friends, let's not, let's not feel like we deserve something from God because, because we happen to be faithful or we happen to be in church or we happen to be raising our family the best we know how. Look, we don't deserve anything from God. By humility and fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. The sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite spirit. Let's be careful. If you want God's blessing, stay broken. If you want miracles, stay modest. If you want the impossible, then stay insignificant. The marveling of this man's faith was preceded by a curious humility and it was partnered with a confident hope. In verse seven, the latter part, he says, Lord, just say the word and my servant will be whole. Just say the word. His humility was partnered with a hope. Now friends, we gotta define the word hope biblically because when we say hope, we say things like, boy, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Or I hope the Rams win. I, I, I hope I get a raise this year. I hope inflation comes down. We don't have any guarantee of any of that. We just kinda hope, right? But that's not the way the Bible defines hope. Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation. Here's how God uses the word hope. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ coming back. That's a fact. It's not like, well, I hope the wind doesn't blow tomorrow. No. We don't say, I hope the Lord's coming back. No, it's a blessed hope. It's a confident hope. It's an expectation that it could happen at any moment. You see, the word hope in the Bible is always a confident expectation because it is directed toward God. Now, faith in practice looks different than faith in theory. Because if, if you asked me or I asked you tonight, do you have faith, we'd probably all say yes. I'm a person of faith. 
I, I have been saved by faith. I, I'm supposed to walk by faith. I'm supposed to live by faith. I, yes, I have faith. But sometimes faith in practice looks different than faith in theory. A number of years ago at West Coast, we had three weeks of chapel services where every preacher we asked to come and preach preached on the subject of faith. Now, we didn't ask him to. It was kind of uncanny. It was kind of startling after a while. In fact, it was kind of the joke on campus. Let's go to chapel. We're going to hear another message on faith. I mean, every day for three weeks, everybody that preached preached on the topic of faith. Different passages, different types of messages, but always centered on this thing of faith. At that time in the college, there was a young lady by the name of Chrissy. Chrissy, I didn't know her real well. She was in her second year. But I saw her one day, previous to all this, in the back hallway after a chapel service, and I stopped and I said, Chrissy, you're not playing volleyball this year. Chrissy was on our team her freshman year and had done quite well. And I said, Chrissy, you're not playing volleyball this year? And she said, no, I, I have to work a little bit more this year. And I said, oh, I understand. I understand. Well, I hope you get caught up and I hope you can play again next year. And, and I just, I, it was just a quick, simple conversation. What I didn't know was the reason she was having to work a little extra was her mom had cancer. Single parent mom and no insurance. And the treatments that she needed were very expensive. And Chrissy was working two jobs, two 30-hour-a-week jobs. Now, if I had known that, I probably would have stopped it. She was running herself ragged. But she would take one paycheck, put it on our school bill, she'd take the other paycheck and send it home to her mom to try to pay for these, pay, these, these treatments. I didn't know this. Well, every day we heard these messages on faith. And I sit on the platform in chapel and, and uh, I'm sort of angled toward the pulpit. And in my eye line was Chrissy. She always sat in the same seat and, and she was kind of in my eye line. If I, if I looked past the pulpit out into the audience, I would see Chrissy. And Chrissy every day was just eager to listen. She was taking notes. And, and every day when the invitation was given, Chrissy would come forward. Every day. She'd come and she'd kneel at the altar. And looking back, I know why she came. Because she was claiming by faith that God would somehow provide these needs for her mom to take care of this cancer. I observed all this. Shortly during that period or sometime after, maybe a week or two, one of her uncles passed away. And I heard about it and I heard that her uncle was not a Christian. And Chrissy had a desire to go home for the funeral to witness to her family, but she didn't have the money. Well, I heard about it and I called her in. And I said, Chrissy, I want you to plan to go home for that funeral. You have a desire to, to be a witness and a testimony, and this may be the only opportunity you ever have with some of those family members. And so you, you make your plans, and I'll get a ticket for you, and you're, you're going to go home to that funeral. And she did. When she came back, she told us that she had seen two of her family members saved at that funeral. And we were all delighted about that. So all that 
was kind of in my mind. And one day I was walking into chapel and Dr. Weaver was in front of me because he was going to lead the singing. We had prayed in the back and we were coming out onto the platform. And Dr. Weaver, just before we got to the door that entered onto the platform, he turned around and he slapped an envelope on my Bible. He said, oh, I forgot. You need to read this. You need to read this. It's, it's a note from Chrissy. Well, now he's walking on the platform and I got this note on my Bible. And you know, when somebody tells you that, you're like, okay, I want to read this. But I'm on the platform, you know. And I try not to be disturbing on the platform. I don't want people doing what I'm doing, you know. And so uh, I, I want people to sing. And so he's leading the singing. I'm wondering what's in this letter? What's in this note, you know? And I was curious about it. And so somewhere in that service, I don't remember how I manipulated it, but I got that note out and I, I glanced at it. That morning, Chrissy had received a telephone call from a lawyer. And unbeknownst to her or her mom, her uncle was pretty wealthy. And when he died, he left them a large sum of money, well over a million dollars, to take care of the treatments of her mom and her entire school bill for three years. Well, I saw this in the middle of the service, and I'm like, wow, wow. I need to bill him for that plane ticket I bought. <laughs> well, sure enough, the message that morning was on faith. And Chrissy's out there, but she's eagerly listening, but she's, her eyes are just streaming with tears invitation was given, she came forward. But I watched her there at that altar. She was not weeping now as she cried out to God for help. She was weeping now, prayer rejoicing. Everybody went back to their seat and I came to the pulpit and I said, uh, Chrissy, come here. Come on, get up here. I have the letter that you wrote to Dr. Weaver. I know what happened. I want you to come tell us what happened. And she got up and told his story through her tears, how God had provided because of her faith. Well, it was a great service. I mean, kids cheered, kids were so happy for her, and it was a great lesson. We went to the next hour of classes. I did, and most of the students did, some did not have class. I came back to my office after class, and I was climbing the stairway to my office, and about halfway up, there was a girl sitting at the top of the stairs. Her name was Joanna. Joanna was one of these students who the glass was always half empty. You know, she was a pessimist. Everything was always like, I don't know. I don't think it'll happen. I, I don't think I can pay my bill. I don't think I can pass that test. I don't think I better take that course. It was always like this can't happen. She was a pessimist. And she was kind of a dreary girl. She never laughed. She never smiled. She just was always kind of, you know, kind of negative. She's sitting at the top of the stairs, but when I came into her eyesight, she leaped out of the chair, and she said, Brother Gatch, Brother Gatch, she's jumping up and down. I thought, Joanna, calm down. Don't, don't have a heart attack, you know. What's going on? Come in my office. She followed me in there. I said, have a seat. She wouldn't sit down. She, I said, what, what's going on? She said, she said, Chrissy's testimony, Chrissy's testimony. I said, yeah, wasn't that a blessing? She said, Brother Gatch, when you all went to class, I didn't have a class. And I sat there and I thought, I need to have faith. 
And she said, while you all went to class, I went to the altar. And I asked God to increase my faith like that. She said, I spent about 20 minutes with the Lord. And I got up and I was going back to my dorm and I thought, well, I checked my post office box. You know, it's on the way. She went into the, into the mail room and there was a letter. She opened it up and it was a check that would cover the rest of her school bill for that year. And she stood there and she said, Brother Gatch, it's faith. We got to have faith. We got to have faith. I said, Chrissy, I said, Joanna, where have you been? We've been hearing message after message after message. But see, faith looks different in practice than it does in theology. We can say, yes, I have faith. I have faith. But are you practicing that faith? Are you believing that God can do the things on your prayer list? Can you, do you believe that God can even do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think? Is Jesus marveling tonight at your unbelief? Or is he marveling at our faith? 